Welcome back to Paperweight, written comedy performed live. I'm Sarah Esikoff, and this is the second in our three-part miniseries. Our guest is James Folta, and this episode is all about the sea. Welcome to Paperweight, written comedy performed live. Today's theme is maritime. Uh, because Pirates of the Caribbean did so well at the box office 15 years ago, and we just wanted to uh, ride that wave, so to speak. Uh, I'm joined today by our usual writers. First up, she's the company manager of the Flea Theater and self-identifies as having sexy librarian style, Emily Pax. Next up, he's a writer, actor, and as of recently, a jewelry person, Paul McCallion. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and finally, she's a production coordinator and cuts her own hair, Keelan Ryan. <laughs> look at that even length. <laughs> Don't look too close. <laughs> I'm so excited about our guest today. He's a prolific comedy writer. You've seen his work in The New Yorker, McSweeney's, Esquire, all over the place. He made a full-length New Yorker parody called The New Yorker. That's one of the funniest things I've ever read. If you haven't seen it, please look it up. And recently, a collection of GOP-themed satire called Paul Ryan Magazine <laughs> that includes headlines like, Get the perfect body for escaping your constituents. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he's so, so funny. Please welcome James Folta. For those of you just listening, I'm doing my best queen slash, uh, what is this? Jazz hands? Jazz hands, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking like pageant mod. But like higher up. Yeah. Yeah. So in Paul Ryan magazine, I want to chat about that first. You say that Paul Ryan smiles like he's, quote, showing off teeth he stole from a corpse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's so good. That's from my letter to the editor, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. What else did you learn about our speaker? Anything interesting? Yeah, I mean, we've been working on it for about a year, so I've been much too close to him for a long time in a way that pervades one's dreams, and it's true. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I found out a lot about Janesville, his hometown. I would guess that I've probably seen every free use photo of him um, <laughs> that exists on the internet. Fun fact, if you're trying to make a magazine don't want to buy photos, anything on a .gov website is fair use. Yeah. Uh, that is great yeah, to know. So fun fact. And seems like a bad call. <laughs> Truly a very bad call because I did some horrifying things in Photoshop <laughs> with some of those pictures. Where um, did the idea come from originally? So we came up with the idea in September before the incident. Um, and uh, referring to the election. Um, <laughs> And it was so funny back then. Like it was such like a smart, fun idea. And then suddenly it became very dark very quick. Um, but I think the idea was Trump will always be an anomaly and like a dark aberration. But the gatekeepers of the GOP, guys like Paul Ryan, left the gate open for all these goons to rush in. So he's sort of the perfectly like anodyne golden boy of this idea of a political class that is so lustfully after tax cuts and uh, ripping apart the social safety net that they... Let's keep it like <laughs> It's a comedy <laughs> podcast! <laughs> oh. uh, just like, he, he's just a really, really bad guy in a way True. that I think is super insidious. And I think Trump satire is so 
it's everywhere. I mean, it's like as common as water. Yeah, so truly. I think for us, going after someone like Ryan was like a more useful satirical take. Than, yes. You know. Do you plan on doing a Mitch McConnell sequel? <laughs> oh God, we had an interview with someone who was like, "So you've done this for how many congressmen so far?" And we were like, <laughs> "Just one," <laughs> and it ends here. <laughs> You had a question about the New Yorker, right? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> of all is. of the New Yorker sections, mm -hmm. which did you have the most fun satirizing? Um, God. I think <laughs> the one that I really loved that people really responded to well in the magazine were the weird, like, one-third page ads. The <laughs> ads were great. Because, yeah. like, the, the big, the big full-page ads are, like, you know, Chrysler... Timex, whatever. Like, they're big brands. But the ones on the side are bizarre and insane. And, like, any sort of, like, prestige literary magazine will have these same weird ads for, like, hat companies, weird archaeological tours for old people, <laughs> like, dog sanctuaries. Like they so many, like, online courses that you yeah, can take yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. like, Roman so buildings. Good. And they're super low budget. They're clearly designed in, like, the freeware version of InDesign. <laughs> Yeah, and they're just, they're so dumb and weird, and they're so <laughs> revealing about what advertisers think the audience of The New Yorker is. Yeah, what was the, you did one that was like a hat Fine, ad. fine hats of France. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's time we start to get our sea legs <laughs> with a nautical advice column from Keelan Ryan. Yeah. Oh! All right, my piece is called Greed, Mead, and Seaweed, One Bitch's Guide to the High Seas, the Ocean Floor, and Everything in Between, a.k.a. Water. <laughs> Land ho hoes, it's time for advice from your main sea witch. As always, I'm here to answer all your most pressing maritime queries. Question. There are only three other girls in my life raft, and they're super clicky. How do I fit in? Answer. I've been there. Raft relationships can get catty once you've eaten the people who are easy to kill. <laughs> Don't sweat it, babe. I find that a simple name game is the best way to break the ice. This is when everyone on the raft simultaneously names who they think should be the next to go. <laughs> Three people said Karen. That's a majority, baby. <laughs> once she's gone, you and your remaining raft mates will be BFFs until bloodlust kicks in again. Ugh. <laughs> Question. What should I wear to walk the plank? Boho skirts are out, and pants don't fit me well because I only have one leg. <laughs> Answer. First of all, don't let your leg situation stand in the way of a killer outfit. Just slap a peg on that thing, you stupid bitch. <laughs> when I'm walking the plank, I love a distressed jean with a bikini concealed underneath. The exposed threads from the jeans are easier for dolphins to grab onto so they can pull me to the nearest shore. And once I'm there, I set up shop on the beach in my swimsuit. Summer bodies are made in the winter. <laughs> Question. I'm 17 and haven't gotten my period yet. What's going on? <laughs> Answer. Visit your gynecologist. Don't be deterred if your parents have poor health insurance. You can't put a price on good health, and being proactive is the first step. <laughs> Question. <laughs> My shipmates are peer pressuring me to drink. What do I do? <laughs> Answer. Mead not your speed? Can't relate. <laughs> However, if your friends are trying to make you do something you don't want to do, that's not friendship, sweetie. That's a mutiny. <laughs> Nothing to do here except the usual. Stab the dissenters. 
<laughs> then, <laughs> then, to cover your tracks, make off on a life raft, cut your hair, and start a new life. Throw yourself into your job as a dock worker and try to find comfort in the tedium of manual labor. <laughs> With time, your friends and family will forget you. You may even start to forget yourself. But while you can scrub away the wooden planks of the dock until they gleam, you can never scrub away the past. <laughs> Years later, one of your former crew will spot you at work as a ship sails into port. You will lock eyes, recognizing each other not for who you are, but for who you once were. You smile, acknowledging the past and the uncrossable chasms that separate us. Every person is an island, each life a brief cry to the heartless stars. <laughs> I have a story about some nautical advice. For years growing up in the summers, I worked as a sailing instructor in Maine, and there are a lot of old laws on the books in Maine about like if someone cuts your lobster trap, you can shoot them. <laughs> just, just as an example, that's one of them. And this actually like happens every couple of years. And one time we had this guy who was working with me who was not from Maine, and we were having trouble getting the boats like around the lines of the lobster traps and he cut one of them and we were all like oh my god like <laughs> you idiot like look what you've done like we're, <laughs> we're done for um, and, and he's still on the run <laughs> yeah and we did not get shot but we did the next day when we got to work, there were fish guts all over our boats. It took us like a full day to scrub oh. them off. I love the idea. I love how like mobby that is. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, I want like a, um, a rural Maine godfather. Like, yeah, Sopranos, yeah. <laughs> it's like sea street justice. Yeah. Which is like canal justice. <laughs> also, I just love the implication that like, even like at one point, like it was like lobsters are worth more than people. Like, <laughs> like, there's no amount of lobster that's like, not worth more than a person. Well, when people talk about it, they're like, well, yeah, I mean, it's their livelihood, and if you cut a line, that's like thousands of dollars worth of lobster, and I'm like, okay, so human life is like... <laughs> Less a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah. It would be like if you went into a coffee shop and just kicked an espresso machine. <laughs> <laughs> just like, you can't make okay. the thing that you're selling. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if I were in line, I might shoot someone. Yeah. <laughs> All right, on that startling note, next up we have our wonderful guest, James Folta, who will be reading his piece the sea is my mistress. Please don't tell my wife. <laughs> um, how we doing? So good. Um, okay. Maybe it's these rum drinks talking, but I have to confess something to you guys. I'm, I'm having an affair. The sea is my mistress, and you have to swear to not tell Shonda. <laughs> I can't keep lying, you guys. I've been committing adultery for months with the vast body of water that covers most of the planet. The sea and I originally met back when I was a teenager on a vacation in Fort Lauderdale. We kept in touch through the years, but we really reconnected when I took Shonda and the kids to Cape Cod this summer. I immediately noticed the sea. How good it looked. How strong and sensual it was. Our flirtation started innocently enough, a toe in the water, some gentle splashing, letting myself linger in the surf for a little too long, <laughs> burrowing my toes deeper into the sand of the sea floor. Shonda had to ask me to stop moaning in front of our kids. <laughs> I tried to stay away, I, I really did, but even as I sat on the beach, my future lover would laugh at my feet, its tide ever rising and its waves reaching out to touch me. We wanted each other. <laughs> 
And I had to sit and watch seagulls diving in and out of the object of my desire, taunting me with the freedom while I played Kadima with my sons. Oh, how I hated those gulls and how they got to cavort with the sea. I eventually started sneaking out after Shonda had fallen asleep at night. I spent the whole summer waiting for night to arrive just so I could rush out into my lover's surf. That was the beginning of our torrid sexual affair. We were just a man in the sea he adored, frolicking in the moonlight as we consummated our lust each night. All summer, I could smell the brine on my sheets. <laughs> Since that summer, I can't keep my hands off the sea, and it can't keep its sensuous waves off of me. The sea is as complex of a lover as I've ever known. Sometimes it just wants to be calm and cuddle. Sometimes it's content to watch me dance seductively in the sand. Sometimes it wants to be rough, full of lusty white foam. If things get out of hand, we do have a safe word. It's me calling the Coast Guard. <laughs> I do still love Shonda, but there's things the sea can do that she just can't. Shonda can't carry me thousands of miles to far-off lands like the sea can. And the sea does this super sexy thing where it erodes a coastline grain by grain over the course of centuries. It's the kind of thing that Shonda just wouldn't be into. I mean, she can't even commit to a book club. How can I ask her to slowly tear a mountain apart with me? Once, while we were making love, I asked Shonda if she would caress me like the Sal Trusman title occurrent in Norway. She said, what are you talking about? And I said, never mind, let's keep doing human sex. It was so embarrassing. Shonda has been noticing how many clams and fish I've been bringing home recently. And what am I going to do? Lie and say, oh, I love seafood now. <laughs> She'd never buy that. And I can't tell the truth that my mistress is littering the coastlines of the world with gifts for me. Driftwood, dead fish, seaweed, old buoys, wrecked ships, even dead dolphins sometimes. All gifts from one lover to another. I get really jealous. I've screamed awful things at jet skis. I've gotten, into, I've gotten into fist fights with sea otters that are getting too handsy. When I even see a picture of a whale, I get so envious. I want so badly to be huge enough for my mistress to see. I know our love can't last, but my heart is full, full of seawater. What am I gonna tell my kids? I took the boys out kayaking the other day so we could all spend some time together. For a minute, I got to imagine what a life would be like if I had met the sea when I was young and single. And we'd started a life together, a family. For a day, I got to live that fantasy. Just me, my sons, and the sea. He's <laughs> really buying into this fake fantasy. I <laughs> and look, I want to make things work with Shonda. I asked her how she would feel if I told her that I was developing feelings for the sea and how she feels about polyamory. <laughs> She said, what are you talking about? The sea isn't a person. Go back to bed. <laughs> I chickened out of telling her anymore. So for now, I'm just stuck here, high and dry and lonely in dumb old New York, <laughs> pining for my mistress. I've been flushing love notes down the toilet, but the sea can't read. <laughs> but our relationship is so intensely physical, too, that cheesy notes don't really cut it. We need each other. We need each other's bodies. I wish I had unlimited lifetime so I could explore every inch of my gigantic lover from its dark depths to its sunny edges. I don't know what to do. I really don't. I know I love my wife. I also know that I have real feelings for the sea. And that's why as soon as I leave this party, I'm headed straight to the shore. 
to chase away any animals that are trying to make a move and plunge my puny naked body into the sea. <laughs> the sea that I love. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, that was moving. <laughs> that started as a Paul Ryan piece, yes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was Paul Ryan and his love for uh, trickle-down economics. <laughs> So our exploration of the deep has so far been limited to human beings, which is why Emily will now be helping us understand one of the ocean's most inscrutable creatures. Yes! The sexual life of the sea anemone. Know the facts before you pass judgment. It's easy to write off the sea anemone as the most sexually deviant and morally reprehensible creature of the sea. Their habits of procreation are certainly repugnant to those with Judeo-Christian values. <laughs> the relationship between man and sea anemone is a simple one. Man sticks his finger into the squishy, fleshy tentacles of the anemone, pointing at it as if to say, shame on you and all that you stand for. <laughs> and the anemone's tentacles coil and writhe in a paroxysm of both guilt and lust. <laughs> However, just as we have come to terms with the mating habits of giraffes, albeit after years of bigoted disgust, <laughs> humans are capable of extending tolerance and perhaps even empathy to sea anemones in heat. <laughs> it is best to take a comprehensive, scientific approach. Check your prejudices at the door and try to put yourself in the anemone's slimy sack of a body <laughs> before decrying its abhorrent appearance and ways. A sea anemone is a single polyp attached to a hard base surface. That polyp has a columnar trunk topped by an oral disc with a ring of tentacles and a central mouth. <laughs> While sea anemones have for decades been known as the depraved tears of the tide pool, <laughs> when you consider these facts of their anatomy, it becomes plausible that they are not so different from you or I, right? <laughs> a sea anemone breeds by liberating sperm and eggs through its mouth into the sea. The resulting fertilized eggs develop into plalula larvae, which, after being planktonic for a while, settle on the seabed and develop into juvenile polyps. <laughs> to speak in more precise terminology, they jerk off into the sea, and then boom, more sea anemones. They may also breed asexually by breaking in half or into smaller pieces, which regenerate into polyps cloning themselves in a manner very similar to that of Hugh Jackman in The Prestige. <laughs> the reproductive habits of the sea anemone are so nauseating and objectionable, even the most formidable of marine biologists cry out, Oh God, what have I done to deserve this image carved into my psyche? <laughs> and shield their eyes in terror when observing this most shocking and dirty miracle of life. <laughs> As Darwin once said, Nature has a dirty mind, man. <laughs> Nowhere is that more evident than in the life cycle of the sea anemone, that wild, grimy motherfucker of the ocean. <laughs> so there you have it. Now that you know the facts, you can make an educated decision to accept or reject the sexual advances of a sea anemone the next time you poke one. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, I think you're probably the only comedian who's ever gotten a laugh on juvenile polyps. <laughs> yes. Thank you, thank you. I know those research skills would be awesome. 
As I mentioned earlier, I was a sailing instructor for many years, so I thought I would take this opportunity to teach you guys some nautical uh, terminology that'll come in handy if you ever find yourselves in a seafaring way. <laughs> so again, these are uh, some nautical terms. Yidey tide o. That means the tide is coming in. Um, used in a sentence, Yidey tide o. We'd best pull the dinghy farther up the beach. Well, scoop me up and call me Shirley. That's an expression of surprise. As in, well, scoop me up and call me Shirley. Difficult people was canceled. <laughs> and then this one seems similar, but it's very different uh, in meaning. It's just, call me Shirley. And that means you've decided to keep one of your catch of fish as a pet and you've named it. Uh, and the name can be Shirley, but it doesn't have to be Shirley here, just a stand-in for any name. <laughs> uh, example of that is, no, Bluebeard, don't butcher that tuna. Call me Shirley, but call her Tuna Fay. <laughs> uh, you've probably heard this one, red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in morning, sailors take warning. That means that sunrise and sunset can both be an omen that you're going to get your period, and it just depends how you look at it. As in, now Jill, I know it's annoying right now, but remember, that stain on your panties means that one day you can have a child of your own. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Gold tooth, that means virgin. As in, Jill, are you still a gold tooth? That's so embarrassing, and everyone knows you only just got your period. <laughs> uh, you've probably heard this one, too. Those who fall behind get left behind. And that means if the pose is too hard for you, feel free to just take some time in child's pose. <laughs> in a sentence, anyone wishing to deepen their practice can try the inversion, but those who fall behind get left behind. <laughs> Though I do love my maiden fair, she's not compared with salty air. That's bros before hose. <laughs> As in, Blackbeard is such a prick ever since he got wifed up with Cersei. I just want to be like, though I do love my maiden fair, she's not compared with salty air, you know? But I don't think he's in a place to hear that quite yet. <laughs> Kinder captain? That's a captain who's in kindergarten. As in, Weird, that ship has a kinder captain. <laughs> Peg leg, that's a thigh gap. <laughs> Example of that would be Cassandra the Fearsome says, I wish I had a peg leg. And Gwendolyn the Merciless says, oh my God, stop. <laughs> the red tide, that's another period one. <laughs> As in... Uh-oh, looks like Jill finally got her red tied. Maybe now she won't act like such a gold tooth. <laughs> uh, and finally, swab the deck, which is kind of like copy editing. <laughs> As in, thank God for the people that swab my deck. I would be nothing without them. That's why it's so important that we, the media institution aboard this pirate ship, unionize with the WGA East. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, uh, I tried to include down under means Australia, but they made me cut it. <laughs> <laughs>
We're just those people. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move right along to our last piece, which is a bit more theatrical. Uh, it's by Paul McCallion. So I was charged to write by kind of the Hollywood machine, <laughs> an adaptation of Moby Dick as a dystopian young adult screenplay. And guys, this is getting some buzz. So get ready to see this on your screens. Um, I've been passing around to some executives. It's gonna be kind of an instant classic. James will be playing Ishmael. Keelan will be playing the captain of the ship. Emily will be playing Mobica. <laughs> I'll be reading the stage directions. Exterior, whaling vessel. A mid-century whaling vessel. <laughs> the crew struggles to keep the ship upright during a tumultuous storm. A woman's voice, think Shailene Woodley, Jennifer Lawrence, I'm not creative, narrates. It's hard to remember what life was like before the water uprisings. Heave ho, sailor, she's not capsizing on my watch. The sailors grunt with effort. Our elders tell us that before the water uprisings 100 years ago, humans lived in things called houses on something called land. Why is it so hard for me to conceptualize words with such simple dictionary definitions? I'll explain that later. Or not, whatever. <laughs> the storm rages on, the captain shouting orders more frantically. All I know is that 10 years after the storms, humans are now nomadic populations that can only survive by sailing around the world on ships trying desperately to survive the great tempests that plague our world. For those keeping track, this will be where the similarities to the source material end. <laughs> Somewhere nearby, a rope snaps, maybe. I don't know much about ships. And we see a sailor fall overboard. Someone secure that loose rope. Grab an oar. Mobica, go get Stevens. There's no time! Mobica weaves past the captain, towards the rope. Mobica, get back here! Mobica deftly dodges around sailors doing their shipwork or whatever, <laughs> executing a series of sweet moves that end in her tying the rope back onto the ship, saving the day. She wipes some rainwater away from her face, pushing back bangs and revealing her face. <laughs> you might find her flawless skin and copper eyeshadow at odds with the fact that she's lived on a ship her whole life, but you know, she tied that rope, so. <laughs> the captain speaks again. Mobica, you're out of line. You know I hate that name, Captain. Call me Moby. Title screen rolls in, Moby Dick. <laughs> Interior, Captain's Chamber. The Captain is sitting at a desk inside the ship. He's angry. Moby is standing cross-armed across from him. She now has a bow and arrow across her back. <laughs> Damn it, Mobica. You were reckless out there. You could have been killed. I did what I had to do to save the ship, Captain. And it's Moby. Regardless, we've lost five men to the storms this month, and it's only getting worse. I don't want to lose you, too. So that's why I'm placing you in the brig for insubordination. That's ridiculous! Without me, you would have lost three more people. My mother may have died when I was just a child, leaving me with a palatably tragic backstory, but that doesn't mean you can treat me like a baby. My orders are final. My second-in-command, Ishmael, is going to escort you down there. Ugh, I hate Ishmael. <laughs> He's such a know-it-all, and he treats me like a baby, too. If I had to estimate the sexual tension between us, I'd say, hmm, thinking, uh, you know, zero. <laughs> this is not true. <laughs> Right on cue, Ishmael, almost certainly a Hemsworth, walks through the door. Uh, Moby? Captain Ahab? Pause for gasps. It's time for you to grow up, Mobica, and maybe this will help. It's Moby. And if you don't want me to act like a child, maybe you should stop treating me like one. Long pause. Dad? 
<laughs> Exterior, ship deck, day. Ishmael escorts Moby across the deck to the brig. Moby angrily snatches her arm out of Ishmael's hand. Uh, let go of me, Ish. I can walk by myself. You're just like your mom, you know? You have her olive complexion. Executive note. Wait, she's white though, right? And her piercing blue eyes. Executive note. Oh, good. <laughs> you had me for a second. How did she die, Ish? Dad won't tell me. It's almost as if he sees me as a constant physical reminder of his dead wife, which leads to him exerting unhealthy control over my choices. Ah! You know I'm not supposed to tell you, Moby. Please. Okay. <laughs> you know how your father always said she died falling overboard during one of the storms? Well, that's a lie. She died hunting the white whale. The white whale? I thought that was a myth. The white whale is prophesied to be the only way to end the storms. Only by hunting and killing the white whale can we enter an age of peace. But in the book, Moby Dick is the name of the white whale. Are they separate here? Or is it like, I am actually the white whale? All I know is the only way to end the storms is by killing the white whale. Yes, you've said that several times now. It bears repeating! And I know what you're thinking, but you can't just go off bravely continuing your mother's work and honoring her legacy by searching for the whale yourself. You... I'm going to stop you right there-ish, because that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to find the white whale, and I'm going to find myself along the way. <laughs> Again, though, high chance the white whale is myself. I'm still extremely unclear on where the parallelism ends, and... Tasty blackout. <laughs> Emily, your mom is a big fan of dystopian YA, correct? That is true. She has read the entire Divergent series and seen all the films. One of my favorite things about Emily's mom is that she gets a lot of names wrong, or like titles wrong of things. Here are some of the highlights. <laughs> um, she is French and she speaks English flawlessly, but I do think that English being her second language sometimes messes with her title remembering. Or maybe that's just because she's a mom. But <laughs> Deadly combo. <laughs> Example, oh, have you seen that amazing musical, Rude Awakening? <laughs> Referring, of course, to Spring Awakening. <laughs> I love that movie with Ben Stiller, Tropic of Cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Tropic Thunder actually is one of her favorite movies. <laughs> <laughs> a little weird. funny. Recently, though, she had, like, the ultimate best one. Where she was like, oh, have you seen that musical... Uh, Hans Christian Andersen? I was like, oh, I think that's like an author. Like, I don't think there's any like a biopicy <laughs> musical about him right now. And she's like, oh, you know, with that kid from Harvard Westlake, which is a prep school in LA. And I was able to tell that she was actually referring to Ben Platt, the star of Dear Evan Hansen, <laughs> a title that has absolutely nothing in common with Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, her response went like, when I'm like, are you talking about Dear Evan Hansen? She's like, yes, of course you knew exactly what I was talking about. Before we go, as we do every episode, we're going to share our best unused headline of the week. So this is something that was pitched, but that we didn't end up writing up. This episode comes from Paul, and it is, help, Joni Mitchell's drowning. <laughs> the pitch for this was extremely low concept, high concept, somewhere in that Range. Kind of like performance <laughs> art e. So the idea of this was just that Sarah does a Joni Mitchell impression, 
And we sort of welcome her to the studio, and then she like in like a semi-improvised. Yes. And she yeah. she falls into a pool, <laughs> and then we try to help her, but like Joni just she doesn't always want help. Like you can tell from her song, sometimes she just wants to wallow in it. Yeah. So like, like Joni, grab onto the side of the pool. And it's I'm just right like, there. I feel like we gotta just do this. <laughs> Joni, get out. Somebody. It's not too late, Joni. <laughs> it's a kiddie pool. Just put your feet down. <laughs> you can't see what's happening. <laughs> uh, we decided not to go with that. <laughs> but also to like sneakily do it. So I am pitching it to Fringe. <laughs> uh, I think that is all the time we have. First, I want to say a huge, huge thank you to James Fulta. Yeah. Oh, too kind. I'm blushing. <laughs> We're not a guest gold tooth anymore. Oh. Oh. Very Gross. good callback. <laughs> Thank you so much. It really means a lot. Thank you for having me. Give it up for our writers, Paul McCallion, Keelan Ryan, and Emily Pass. <laughs> I'm your host, Sarah Esikoff. <laughs> and thank you guys for coming out. <laughs> Paperweight was produced by me, Sarah Esikoff. We recorded at Dubway Studios, and our engineer was Sam Palumbo. We were edited and mixed by me and Rebecca Seidel. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>